Now entering Nerdist.com. You made it weird. You made it weird. You made it weird. Oh, yeah. You made it weird. You made it weird. Yes, you did. You made it weird. Oh, yeah. You made it weird with Pete Holmes. New tour dates, everybody. We uh, I'm going to be going to Montreal, Buffalo, Philadelphia, Portland, Boston, and Bloomington, Indiana. If you are in either any of those areas, go to PeteHolmes.com for all the info and tickets. Montreal, Buffalo, Philly, Portland, Boston, and Bloomington. New tour dates are going to be added. I'll be sure to mention them here at the top. And I do want to say thanks to everybody that came out to San Francisco for Cobbs. San Francisco is such, a, such an amazing city, such a wonderful city, such a city close to my heart. And just for that very reason. So many weirdos came out. It was so great to meet so many of you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That was awesome. So hope to see more of you out on the road. Me and uh, old Chris there, back at it. Back at it again. Uh, the ad for this one's real quick. It's just Amazon. If you're going to buy something on Amazon, just uh, go to Nerdist.com. Go to this episode's banner, and there's a link for uh, Amazon. Go to Amazon through the link, and then a portion of what you buy will go to support this show. It's it's honestly the easiest way to show your support, and we always, always, always appreciate it. Uh, let's get into this. This is Gentry Lee, who uh, you may not know, but you're about to know. He's an amazing author, scientist, and this is in the Friends of Rob Bell, the Forb series, uh, where he's not a religious person at all, but uh, Gentry met Rob, and Rob told me what an interesting fellow he was. So glad we had him on. Just just one of those, kind of like Brian Greene, I was laughing a lot at just a lot of the science he was dropping, and also just some incredible creativity. So uh, good on you for listening to one with a name that isn't, you know, like a bigger name uh, in the showbiz world, but I think you're, you're in for a treat. So enjoy Gentry Lee, everybody. Mr. Lee. Yes, sir. I'm just Gentry, though. Gentry. Yes. I don't know. I'm just being formal. We've never met. How you doing? Fine. You're Pete? I'm Pete. Yeah, this is Katie. Hi, Katie. This is the guest seat, if you don't mind. All right. I don't want you, though. Oh, jeez. Oh, good Lord. Gentry. I mean, it's such a it's such a cool name. Let me turn this off. So don't Please. Yeah, let's be, let's be present people. I'll put this in my American pocket. This is uh this is an episode of uh, friends friends of Rob Bell. I know you don't you're not like close with Rob Bell, but Rob put us in touch, okay. and we've had such good good success with just people that Rob was like, you got to talk to this guy. That's it. That's all I know. I did a little bit of research, but for the most part, you're on the show because you met Rob and talked with Rob. Okay, and then put these on. yeah, you can if you'd like to hear the show. You don't have to. Okay, I like hearing. Give it a try. It feels like you're on the radio. See. All right. Do you like it? That's fine. You don't have to like it. That's okay. <laughs> I'm easy. Well, you're a creative person. You're an author. I have to think there's part of you that likes hearing your own voice as much as I do. Uh, well, I hear it a lot. Do you? And I've been around a long time. I've heard. I've heard myself a lot. You've heard enough of live your voice. and taped and you know everything yeah. else. Are your books on tape? Uh, yes. Yeah. That yeah. seems excruciating. Yeah. Is but, it? It's not my voice. What do you mean? Well, because... Oh, you don't read it. I don't read them. Star, you don't, stars read them. You don't go, this is the author. No. You don't, don't do that? I don't do that. You I think Alfred you. Woodard did one and so forth. You know, they, yeah, they, sure. They, they, they you know, contract people to read books. Yeah. And, and somebody decides what part of the book they're going to read. They don't ask the author. They just do it. <laughs> Nobody consults you so, no, at all. No, no. That's the way it is. You know, you sign away your life. Yeah. So, I mean, once upon a time, somebody bought one of the books for a movie. Yes, and I didn't sell it for enough money, and so they put a B grade writer on it. and And when I read the script, I said, "This is not based on my book." Of course, it didn't get made. Thank goodness. So I yeah. decided then that if I ever sold another book to a movie, it was going to be for an awful lot of money. So but, they'd have to hire somebody and pay them an awful lot because they had invested so much in in the initial right. purchase. That's right. Because you think if they saved money from buying it from you, they could have splurged on a better writer. Well, no, no, I, no, I would have believed the opposite. That's not the way it works. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You got to be careful. That's right. Well, that's interesting. I, so tell me, tell me everything. I, I just want to. Tell me where you met Rob and what you told him. We'll start there. Okay. Well, I met Rob at Carlton Cuse's house. Carlton, who Car- produced Lost. Yes, who produced Lost. Yeah. And we immediately got, he said he was a minister, and I was fascinated because it's always interesting to me to run into someone who's both intelligent and a minister. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because in, 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 from, from, in my life, most of the time, that's an oxymoron. Yeah, sure. I okay, understand. So I wonder, what do you think? What do you believe? Yeah. You know, how, how strict are your, are, you know, are your thoughts? And, yeah. 
Now, do you, do you have a preferred model theory of life, or are you tolerant? You know, I immediately jump. Yeah. In what are what are what are your touchstones to find out where where somebody's okay? Heart? The most important thing. Yeah. Is tolerance. Okay? Yeah. That means I believe what I believe. Okay. Yeah. But I'm not pushing it down your throat. Sure. Okay. That's okay. If we can reach a happy medium on that point, yeah. we can then have a conversation. Yeah. And in one of my books, I told him, you know, I have this fantastic uh, thing that I want you to read. It's about a, a meeting between a fictional cosmonaut and the Pope, where the cosmonaut has now been seen unambiguous evidence that there exists life that arose somewhere else, and it's much more advanced than we are. Right. I said, okay, now, what I want to know is how can a rigid fundamentalist religion ever deal with a situation that is almost certain to happen at some time in the future? Right. We will be confronted by the fact that not only does there exist something else intelligent, but something far more intelligent than we are. Right. And then you get all these wonderful questions, like, did God create them and his image too? Is there a, uh, did a Jesus visit them? Did a Jesus visit them? Is there an alien did, did they, Jesus? That's right. Did they need to be redeemed for their sins? If not, why not? Why did we have to be redeemed right, for right, ours? Right, right, right. So we got on and on and on. And Carlton, yeah. meanwhile, said, got everybody around to listen to this conversation going yeah. on. Rob and I had a lot of fun. Well, that's a good one. Yeah, what, that's what, very good. What, but what were your, what, do you go to homosexuality or do you go to race relations or marriage or what What are your that's what I want to know like when you're trying to find out what somebody's faith looks like what color it is okay. or what shape it is I start first from the point of view of you know what you know you believe what you believe what does that have to say about someone else yes okay on all issues it's exactly the same for example someone says I don't believe in abortion okay. that's fine as long as they don't tell me you shouldn't believe in abortion. Yeah. As long as they say to me, okay, I want to hear your point of view. How did you get there? What is the epistemology that came to that as the truth for you? Yeah. And that's all I wanted to find out. And as soon as Rob passed what I call the acid test, and the acid <laughs> test is, I am not going to jam what I believe down your throat. No, he never okay. would. Yeah, sure. Then I said, that's wonderful. Now we can talk about how religion should behave in the world that exists today. Well, how does the Pope talk to the cosmonaut? The, the Pope talks to the cosmonaut about the following thing. He <laughs> says, okay, this what is What are you, a jukebox? This is fun. No, no, no. No, I no. love it. You're a good guest uh, okay. already. I'm all like... right, now, here you go. All right. I spent a couple of days with the Bishop of Los Angeles practicing all this stuff before I wrote the piece down. <laughs> okay, good. Because I needed to know what a real bishop thought. After all, I wasn't... Uh, you uh, had an easier time writing the cosmonaut uh, than you did the Pope. Uh, oh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. You'd you know? think, though, understanding the complexity of the multiverse versus a man and a doctrine, you know, the, fir- the former would be more difficult. Well, that's right, except this was a particular kind of a cosmonaut that I created just for this scene. Yeah. He was a Roman Catholic named O'Toole from uh, Boston, oh. okay, who was Schooled in all the Catholic catechism. Oh, schooled. And then later on realized that there was a fundamental disconnect between the idea of a paternal God reaching out and touching everything, as in the Sistine Chapel, yeah. and the beliefs that he was coming to that this all happened in this wonderful nebula four and a half billion years ago. And somehow, by a process that nobody even understands today and we're still working on, life became organized and the chain began. Yeah. So he says to me, Rob, says, well, how do you deal with this? I said, it's very easy. In the last book of the Rama Trilogy that I wrote with Arthur C. Clarke, yeah. which the New York Times said is, answers all the questions you may ever want to have about where human beings came from, where they're going to go, and why, Okay, we evoked a possible explanation. There's not a personal God, but there's a grand designer who's sitting out there tinkering. He creates the universe. Oh, he is wrong. It could be he, she, it. Anything yeah, you want. Sure. Creates universes and tries to see if we can get the formula exactly right so that the universe will end in harmony. Okay? <laughs> so far. That is your thesis. So, so far. Yeah. No, this is a, an idea. It's an just an idea. idea. that is represented in fiction. Yeah. So far, this particular universe, not doing so well. <laughs> He needs to do some more tinkering. No, no, he doesn't tinker after he gets started. After he, he says, it's right. a, like the referee. You know, yeah. the kickoff comes, and then he watches to see what happens. Ah, I didn't do that exactly right. Next time, interesting. But if so, he was powerful enough to start the process, he could intercede. Oh, of course, but he, he doesn't intercede. No, he doesn't intercede. Now, now, this is not new with with Arthur and me. We we discussed it at great length. But Voltaire's concept of God was, you know, he made the ship, and he's not worrying about what's happening to the ship. He just made the ship, and wanted to see where it would go. Yeah. 
You know, we 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 have made. See, it's very interesting. Like thing. ants, yeah. Like we don't care about ants. Well, and that's a very interesting subject, Pete. You know, ants? if an extraterrestrial were to come to this, well, planet, this is what I'm afraid of. They would declare the dominant species on the planet Earth are the ants, not us. Really? Oh, absolutely. There's no question about it. Let me give you a few facts, okay? There are 200 billion billion ants for every one of us. 200 billion billion. The biomass of ants is a billion times greater than the biomass of human beings. 200 billion 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 more. That's right, okay? The ants are everywhere. Not only that, listen to this. How many species, other species on Earth, are dependent upon us? Maybe a dozen. Do you want to know how many species are are dependent upon ants? How many? 20,000. There's all sorts of species that couldn't live without the ants. You can imagine it. No. Does that include us? Huh? Do they have no. a bee-like function no, for we, us? No. The ants, we can probably survive without the ants. But yeah. let me explain something to you about extraterrestrial communication. <laughs> ants have a language. We know they have a language. Have you ever wondered, do you have an ant in your sugar jar and all of a sudden, very soon thereafter, there's all sorts of ants there? Right. Do you know why? Why? Because as the ant leaves the sugar to go home, every footprint he puts down, puts down a chemical that says, sugar over here, sugar over here. And every ant that comes along says, ah, and goes that way. He got a footprint language? Oh, yeah. It's all chemical. And we now know of about 150 to 200 words for sure, and there may be more than that. It's like when a stoner's, uh, like, parka smells like But now listen to this. (laughs) Why do you think human beings have never tried to figure out the language of ants? Uh, Because we don't give a shit. That's exactly right. You hit, you, hit the, you, you hit the nail on the head. And this is why when someone says, if there's all those brilliant extraterrestrials out there, why don't they contact us? And I said, let me give you two reasons right off the bat. First of all, if you were looking at us from space and you saw we were spending one quarter of our gross world product on arms and we were scrapping in our mess kit faster than you can believe, the world's not even going to be habitable. Enough, what would you say? Would you want to get in touch with those guys? That's one possible explanation. Second possible explanation is just like we don't talk to the ants. Those characters down there aren't worth talking to. Those guys. Those guys. That's us. <laughs> it, is, it is interesting. So they, if they came here, if aliens did come here, they would think ants were in charge. Uh, they would think that ants they would know were it. the most successful species on this planet. Now, what do you think they would say about us? I have to tell you a funny story here. Tell me, please. I was invited as the technocrat to an alien abduction convention. Now, how could you turn that down? I, I mean, would have turned that, that they down. Paid. I was going to an alien abduction convention because they'd heard me speak. <laughs> you about salty this, this dog. Okay, tell so, me this story. So, this was fantastic, <laughs> you know? I went to the same university, a prominent Midwestern university, which asked that they not be named when I tell this story, okay. where I had given a lecture on spaceflight about three years before to an audience of 800, which I had thought is good. But for the alien abduction convention, there were 3,000 people in this auditorium and 5,000 in another room. I was absolutely amazed. So first, the guy from Arizona got up and he talked about how the aliens had come and gotten him five times. And every time they took him away, they pointed long, skinny objects in all his orifices. Yep, orifices, yep. if you prefer. I we like know the number one one yes, they went that, for. That, they right. love so, that. They absolutely do. And everybody gave him a standing ovation when he was finished. Yeah, Next, okay. a little mousy woman from a rural Maryland Gotta go for stood a up one. and said that every six weeks on Tuesday night, the aliens will come and land in her meadow. And she's always out there to greet them up. She goes with them. They stick long, skinny objects and all her. Still probing? They can't yes, that's probing. right. That's right. And she got a standing ovation, too. Okay. And then... A Ph.D. professor from Harvard stood up. And what did he say? He said, these stories have to be true. I'm going to give you a statistical proof of why it is impossible for the human mind to imagine stories with such parallel you know, th- yeah. things together. And he thought he did a proof that it was probability 1 in 10 to the 15th that they were lying. He got a standing ovation. Then they introduced me. <laughs> The skeptical technocrat. And as soon as I stood up, I was booed from all sides. And I walked up there and I said, this is going to be... They booed you when you stood up? They booed me when I stood up. And I said, I did my Burt Lancaster uh, imitation, Uh you know, from Elmer Gantry. Sure. I said, aliens, can you hear me up there, aliens? And then I looked at the audience. I said, do you know something, folks? Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Don't you think it's amazing not one of these two people or anyone else who has ever been abducted by an alien has brought back a single artifact 
Not a thimble, not a drinking glass, not an ashtray, not headphones, nothing. Yeah, the, in, the imi- in-flight headphones. That's right, that I could immediately, <laughs> immediately reverse engineer and determine that it wasn't made on the earth. And then I went back to Burt Lancaster and I said, Okay, aliens, come get me. I will fill my pockets with your crap and prove to the world that you exist. They they they, they didn't like they, this, no, but they clapped. They thought they thought it was reasonably clever. <laughs> so so that's where we are. Twenty five percent of the people in the United States of America believe we are regularly visited by aliens, and they're so incapable of critical thinking they don't ask the question: Has anybody ever brought anything back? Right. I, I you you have heard stories of people having like weird implants that look like sea glass in their uh, yes. legs and stuff. Sure, uh, they, and then somebody figures out what it's all about. Now, <laughs> when, when I was really young, yeah, I was very interested in these close encounters of the third kind, and so I went to visit people who were visited by aliens. Cool, this, this was a fun thing. My favorite story is I went down to the Louisiana with these two brothers, both the three hundred pounds apiece, and we got into a pirro and we went out in the bayou. It was very scary. There were crocodiles around, all this sort of stuff. I said, is this where the aliens come? I kept asking that question. Oh, yeah, the aliens will be here any minute. Ooh, I can hardly wait. You know, I was about 25 years old. So, well, you, we, you were genuinely excited. You weren't oh, just toying. No, 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 I was. You were I, like, I, let's I do this. I, I wanted to find out what this was all about. I had not yet reached the point in my life where I realized that there was a flaw in all these stories. What? Yes. So, so here we are. you got to imagine this whole scene. And all of a sudden, <laughs> all right, they pull out a demijohn of bourbon. And they start just drinking great gulps from this demijohn of bourbon, and they offer it to me. And I said, no, I, I don't think I can handle that. And they said, well, I said, they said to me, the aliens don't show up until we're almost done. Oh, come on. Really? Really? <laughs> Bingo. Are you sure it was an absinthe or something? I mean, uh, no, bourbon. That seems they pretty said boring. it was a demijohn of bourbon. I don't know. You Who know, knows what it was? I, I didn't drink it. And if I had, I wouldn't have known what it was. So it, you th- what is the flaw? I, I know you're dancing around it, but the fundamental flaw is no one's bringing back evidence or anything? That's right. But what about the... Uh, look, I'm just having fun. I love exploring these types of things, and I have the type of brain that really enjoys the novelty of considering that they're true, believing that they're true. Sure. It's recreational for me. I really enjoy it. But I mean, like, somebody has taken... Is there a possibility that you're a science fiction writer? I'm sure you, you've considered something like this. It's just not. It doesn't work that way. It's not about bringing back evidence. It's just not in the field of possibility. But it doesn't make it not real. It just makes it not real to our world. Okay. Well, first of all, there is. I barely the, understand my question. I can't the, believe you have an answer. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I, I picked up on uh, a, a couple of the resonance spots. Okay. I'll, yeah. I'll yeah. Please. Ahead. Okay. First of all, I believe with a virtual certainty that there exists not only life, but intelligence elsewhere in the universe. Okay. Okay. So, and in fact, the novels that Arthur and I did together are peopled, and not really peopled, but I don't know sure. what the word is for Martian. Aliens. Yeah. <laughs> with, with creatures, and we give the background of how they got to be the way they are and all that, all that sort of stuff. Nevertheless, if we ever have unambiguous contact with intelligence of another origin, it will be the most significant historical event that has ever occurred, and life for us will be changed forever. Just recreate the the uh, Cortez expedition into the Aztec society. Mm-hmm. The Aztecs were never the same after that. Sure, and that was only those a, were guys a, in boats. Yeah, that was a relatively <laughs> small difference. Yeah, and when you take yeah. the fact that the universe. The, has been here for such a long period of time. Let me just explain. The Milky Way galaxy, that's our group of stars, didn't even form until one-third of the history of the universe was over. <laughs> and our solar system and our planets and us didn't form until two-thirds of the history of the solar system. And we've only been here an infinitesimal point at point in yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The likelihood is if there's guys out there in the Federation Galactica, and I'll quote my friend Arthur C. Clarke, their technology will be indistinguishable from magic. And so if they were to... to, Yeah, imagine. Day one, they take over all our TV stations, say, okay, for today, we're going to give you a cure for cancer. Yeah. Okay. And and so forth and so on. Sure. For tomorrow, we're going to show you how to make a creature to... You just put into the computer what characteristics you want, and out comes the embryo of that creature on the other side, and all sorts of things like that. A biological 3D printer. That's right. Okay? That's right. So they would wow us with us the way I wow my dad with the app Shazam. And then what happens... (laughs) is we stop. 
Uh-huh. We stop developing. We wait for them yeah. to tell us what's the next thing to do. Because after all, we spent all this time. We didn't get anywhere. And they have it right there at the fingertips. Right, right, right. They're and, Amazon and Prime. That's right. <laughs> or, or better. Okay? So there we go. Thank you, Jeff. Anyway, so that's why. We stop growing. Uh, I'm sorry. It, story, it, that story's over. I didn't mean to. No, no, no. That's, that story's over. The point that people wonder all the time is if they exist, what are they like? Now, I've been asked on television if I could imagine two things to happen in my lifetime Mm. that would be the best things that could possibly happen, what would they be? And I said, number one would be tolerance. You and I have talked about that already. Yep. That's having human beings realize that other people don't come to the same conclusions you do, and it's okay. We just covered a huge epiphanal sort of fundamental truth in the first two minutes. That's right. And number two (laughs) is clear and unambiguous evidence. Yeah. That intelligence, or I will accept just life of a different nature, mm. was, has evolved somewhere else. This now, comes up all the time. Pardon me. Uh, I, you can finish. Fine. I won't forget. No, no, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> there are those mass sightings. We have mass UFO sightings, right? Okay. That means something was flying in the sky that the people who saw it didn't understand. Sure. Okay? Yeah. That is a gigantic leap from there to, okay, it must be guys from some other planet. You think it's us flying well, Doritos? It, it could be almost anything. And remember this statement. It's very important in life. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary, extraordinary evidence. evidence. That's, and then... Remember to go along with that Occam's razor. Uh, it's yeah, we a shave with that one all the time. Cut yeah. in our philosophical approach to logic and so we see a weird tri-colored thing making right-degree turns in the sky. That's right. Probably us. We fly things in the sky. And what we should do is invoke the. That's what Occam's that razor is Occam all about. Say. Occam, the least <laughs> unlikely hypothesis to explain that. Right. The most unlikely hypothesis is these little green men that came from three thousand light years away right. to stick probes in us. Right, right, right. <laughs> but we've been probed, Gentry. We <laughs> yes. keep getting probed. Yes, indeed. Now I have to tell you that when I was young, LSD was big. Yeah, I'm okay. sure. And one of the things that I did in college in order to did earn you do side LSD? money, no, I did not do LSD, but I sat with a professor who wanted me to write down the experiences of those who were having, you know, taking LSD. LSD. And they did things that were absolutely wonderful. They, their minds created things that were had certainly no reality associated with them. But for them at that moment, they were real. Yep. I remember one story by a fellow that was absolutely fantastic. He was telling me that he was in... A Mayan ceremonial center, mm-hmm. and he was being thrown into a cenote, which is a place where they would then, and at the moment he was in the water. He was there. A 14-year-old virgin was being, having her chest ripped open and her heart thrown to him, and he ate it. I mean, this is a wonderful story. I, I want some of that stuff. I kept saying, well, how in the world can you get that? But unfortunately... That was his only good trip. Yeah. He, he had two more, and they were really bad. There were things in the walls that were out to get him, and they had ten yeah. legs. And I said, ten legs? It's troubling to me that the good one is where a woman's heart was ripped out of her body and thrown to him as a snack. Well, but, you know, comparatively. I understand. Yeah, it's all relative, <laughs> isn't it? But you're saying that his mind made it real. That's right. But you know what's interesting about those th- uh, things? I've had uh, moments while dreaming, or not really while on hallucinogens or anything, I've never done LSD myself. Mushrooms, that sort of stuff. But it had moments where you're thinking, this is too spectacular for me to... uh, Let's just keep it in dreams. Like, I've had dreams where I'm like, this guy's talking just like a doctor. You know what I mean? Where I'm like, how is that happening? Where you start to become convinced. And again, I'm I'm right there with you, Occam's Razor. It's me. It's me and my subconscious remembering how doctors talk, but doing it perfectly in a way that makes me go like, oh, this sort of stuff is coming from another place. This trip is coming from another place. How would I know that that's what the Mayan ritual is? You're saying, Occam's razor, it's a hallucination formed from the gray matter of your brain. But the subject of dreams is a very important one because in dreams, the regular laws that govern our behavior no longer – time passes in strange ways. Mm -hmm. You can move from one room to another and you've gone from – your hometown, wherever you grew up, right. to New York City, and you're walking down the street. Yep. You, you're with somebody, and you turn to look at something else, and when you turn back to the person, you're with, it's not that person anymore. Mm-hmm. All these things happen mm-hmm. in dreams. If any one of those happened, in reality, we would go, good, where's the nearest shrink? Right, and, sure. and, and off we would go. Right. So the mind is capable of incredible things. Okay. So if I'm hearing you correctly, uh, and I think I am, Salem witch trials, these guys were probably eating some rancid wheat or something like that, tripping. Well, 
it's very difficult to understand exactly what motivated things like that in the past. For example, take the burning of the stake of Giordano Bruno. I okay. won't. I don't know what that is. <laughs> Giordano Bruno was a, a scientist in 16th century Italy who had the temerity to declare that the Earth was not the center of the solar system. Not a good time to be okay. a scientist. And that was not acceptable to the Catholic Church. That's heresy. That, that's right. Heresy. So they brought him up for a trial. and a, they a said, they, trial. They, 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 they said to him, now, you can recant. And you can observe around you why it is certain that the Earth is the center of the solar system of the universe. I've forgotten what he mm-hmm. was. He says, no, I cannot. I've observed other things. Let me explain to you why I think it's not. Yeah. No. Burn at the stake. you got to recant in so, that one. That's You're right. like, yeah, totally. Yeah, then, then there's poor Joan of Arc. You know, she was told that if she would recant, yeah. the good things would happen to her. So she tried it, and they lied to her. Oh. So she said, this is bullshit. I'm going back to my original position. And they burned her at the stake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the end result of You're anybody who is not in a sufficiently tolerant spot, yeah. you get burned at the stake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what did that have to do with the Salem witch trials? It's the same kind of thought pattern, okay, is that everybody who was making the judgments at the Salem witch trials had decided a priori what the situation was. Help me out. And, uh, What's a priori? W- w- uh, ahead of time. They, uh-huh. uh, they looked at the evidence through their preferred model, intolerant theory of life, and said, this is the verdict that we have. And that happens even time. in our courtrooms today. Sure. Even at the Supreme Court level. Mm-hmm. The final analysis is not all about logic and tolerance and all that sort of stuff, or even the interpretation of the law. How is it possible, you ask yourself, that the Supreme Court one year would decide A and 50 years later decide not A if what they're doing is following a logical path? I'm slightly out of my field there. If we go back to space and aliens... Yeah, yeah, we'll bring it it back to that. But I guess we're talking about the nature of truth. It is tricky that things that were true at some point will be true later and might go through a time when they're not true. Okay. You know what I mean? <laughs> now, this is a f- th- there is a fascinating philosophic subject called epistemology. Well, I'll bring you in. I'll, I'll make it even more gentry before I'll let you go. Is the idea that something that's true on this planet could not be true on another planet or in another One reality. of the most interesting conjectures that mm-hmm. I have ever heard is the idea that the physics of this universe might not apply in another universe. Yeah. Now... I have absolutely no way of testing that hypothesis, but if this experimenter is trying to get the universe right, is doing it thousands and thousands of times, perhaps he, she, or it is dabbling in the laws of physics sure. as well. Yeah. Because... Let's let him fly in this one. <laughs> and, but all truths have a limit. Let me give you an example. Newtonian mechanics, the simplest thing of all, force is equal to mass times acceleration. As soon as everybody grokked that, the whole world said, that's an absolute truth. It's not, though. Mm. Einstein showed that it's only true if you're not going too fast. If you're going (laughs) really, really fast, then the laws of relativity take over. And when someone asks me, when will we be doing travel out to the stars, I say, now look, if there is something in physics which is to Einstein, as Einstein was to Newton, and we discover it, we could open up travel to almost anywhere in the universe. Then we'll be cooking. Then we'll we, be need, cooking. we need that. That's right. We, we need, need that because the nearest star is 8,000 times as far away as the most distant planet. And Pete, it takes us 10 years with today's technology to get to the most distant planet. And I don't think we're going to mount an expedition that will last for 80,000 years. A few of us might die along the way. <laughs> I heard they were sending people who were volunteering to go to, I believe it was Mars. Yes. And it takes like, how long does it take to well, get there? Well, it depends. Years, right? Today's technology. Depends on the wind? Well, no, it doesn't depend on the wind, but what it does depend on is whether or not you want to have a chance to come back. Well, that's what I was told, yeah, is that they're I mean, not coming back. If they're not coming back, there's a, what's known as a Type 1 trajectory, which comes up about every 26 months. We use them for our spaceflight missions. Mm. And you can get there in six to eight months. Okay? <laughs> it's not a bad thing. But would you want to be in a tiny... Ca- is there a human being you know that you would want to live in at the distance we are for six to eight months? Yeah. I no. Mean, no. <laughs> me, I, no. Would, I certainly wouldn't want to live with myself, for goodness sake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're going to go insane. <laughs> yes. That, 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 is, that is truly wild. What, how are we doing as a planet? If, if aliens did come and that, that huge monumental thing happened 
and here they are. What do you think they would make of us? You think we're not doing so good? Our scorecard is terrible. <laughs> As a people, uh, uh, not a country, uh, uh, just as, as, a, as, as a planet. As a species, okay? <laughs> as a species. Okay, now, now suppose you just woke up this morning and said, oh, it's a lovely day, and you started reading about what's going on in the world. Yeah. I mean, there, there are people butchering other people for no reason other than they don't believe what the first the butchers believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All over the world, every continent. Well, not Antarctica. It's not happening there, but we're yeah. butchering penguins there. So that's yeah, just sure. There. So we're wiping out all the other species. Mm-hmm. Okay? We're a virus. We, we are... If if you were to ask what was the worst thing that ever had happened to the planet Earth, it People. would be that human beings yeah. evolved the ability first to change their environment and take advantage of it. Now, the biggest thing that has happened is our recent biological breakthroughs. Imagine this. It's a thousand years from now and you're reading a history book of this time that you and I are alive. Mm-hmm. Here's the first paragraph. It was in that time, in the early part of the 21st century, that one of the products of three and a half billion years of evolution figured out how to control the whole process and became the arbiter of the entire flora and fauna for the rest of time on planet Earth. (laughs) That's the truth. That's the truth. Just because you eat a genetically engineered tomato and you think it's good, you got to think about the ramifications. It's just a slight distance in the future. And we're going to create all our own creatures. People don't like to wash windows and skyscrapers. We'll create a creature that makes a little soap on the window, squaggles it, and goes yeah. all the way down to the bottom, yeah. barfs, dies, yeah. and then we put another one up there. Right, right, right. All sorts of things like that. It's coming. It's coming. <laughs> what is our responsibility Two animals. That is something that comes up to uh, to me on the show a lot. I have a, a joke that I do in my stand-up about aliens coming and, and they wanting to eat us and we thinking that they shouldn't eat us because we're so smart. But then, like, you know, cows, pigs being intelligent, that sort of thing. Are, should we be nicer to our other earthlings? I'm going to give you a somewhat circuitous answer, but the answer will be yes. Until we wake up and realize that we are the stewards of paradise and that it is becoming non-paradise because of us. Yeah. And with all of the accoutrements that go with that, which is taking care of the air, taking care of the water, taking care of the animals, and trying to live in harmony. Now, you see, before you could ever live in harmony, you would have to embrace tolerance. So that's why tolerance is so important to me. That's like your big one. That's 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 the biggie. So if an extraterrestrial were to come here, okay, they would like our conversation, okay, and they would like Nicole Desjardins, <laughs> in who's the heroine of my three Rama novels. And everybody says, well, she seems to be nearly perfect. And I said, no, she's not. She's an example of what a human being can be. Hmm. Okay, <laughs> not what they are, what they can be. Right. Sure. And if these aliens were to find people like her and a few others, and there are some people who spend their entire lives on this planet thinking about what they can do to contribute, then it would be fine. But I will bet you, this is my bet, not yours, that the aliens would conclude that 97% are some number, plus or minus 2%, okay, (laughs) of human beings don't qualify for the golden weenie. (laughs) <laughs> okay, and that's what allows you to go on. Now, Arthur and I, you just don't get a golden weenie. They don't get right. one. Now, let me tell you what we did. Arthur and I had a different species in one of our novels called the octospiders, and I'm not going to bore you with all the characteristics of them. They were fascinating. Is there anything but boring were, about octospiders? But, 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 but they were a polymorph, like ants. In other words, we just have two morphs, although some think we have more. We have males and females. Sure. But basically, the, the uh, polymorphic species is one that has six or seven, you know, specific morphs to do specific jobs. Like my ex-girlfriend. Right. And the, opti- the, 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 the octospiders, Pete, had yes. one particular morph called the optimizers. And their job, the octospiders were immortal. And we discuss in the book the problems of once you figured out how to make your species immortal. And there's big ones. Sure. So the optimizers then have to deal with how to get society to change because inertia goes up with all this immortality. And so what they do is they grade every other octospider on an annual basis in terms of what they contribute to the society and what they take away from the society. And who gets the weenie? And if you're negative three years in a row, you get a red card. That means if you don't fix yourself in the next year, you're done. We don't give you any more food. 
So oh I get these letters from people saying, what are you trying to say with this? So that we should off all of our old people? I said, no, of course not. I'm just pointing out to you that the f- idea that someone be evaluated, not on how much money they have or what kind of car they drive or how big their house is or how much power they have, but on the total contribution to society versus the total that they subtract mm. is the idea we're trying to advance. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, we would we deep fry some people. So now you see, we, we've come complete. Now that is a thing that Rob and I, for entirely different reasons, agree on. You yeah, see, yeah. He comes to it from religion. I come to it from just fundamental common sense. Sure. If we're going to survive, that's what we have to do. And by the way, even though I don't espouse any particular re- religion, I think Jesus was a wonderful teacher. And do unto others as you would have them do unto you is as f- good a credo as any human being could ever have. Sure. Not unique to Christ. Not unique to Christ. Other people said that. You know what was unique to Christ? Love your enemy. That was something, yes. according to what we can find, only he, said, he was right. the first one to say that. I'm with you. And I think that uh, that idea that you're saying of like trying to put back more than you're taking, you know what I mean? There, a little bit of an enlightenment there. The kingdom of heaven that idea, not some sort of salvation later, but the kingdom of heaven being here, that your, your will on earth as it is in heaven, let's make this an enlightened place. I think that's kind of what you're talking about. Yes, and Arthur and I talked about this at great length, about whether or not the construct of a God that is involved in people's personal lives is a valuable thing. Mm. The idea of, of God, the master designer, we can all grok that. Nobody has any idea. It was 13, you know, 0.81 billion years ago. Boom. Sure. And there came the universe. And nobody has the foggiest idea of what happened before that. Okay? Yeah. So there could be a guy that goes, that's all right with me. But the guy who's involved in whether or not you're being on a daily basis the kind of person you ought to be. Lifeguard guy. Yeah. yeah. That one, I don't get. Yeah, that one. That one is uh, to me. That now seems childish. The the well, you know, it's interesting. I had uh, old Deepak Chopra on the podcast, oh. and I asked him. I said, "Well, what am I supposed to do with?" I didn't say this, but I was basically talking about the Christian idea of sin, talking about redemption and wanting to wash away all our evil and all that sort of stuff. So I was like, he was talking about other planets, and he was talking about he knew the name of the telescope. I'm sorry, I don't. But he was talking about all the other planets and and how many. He had the number. I bet you have the it's number. Kepler, of course. I, I Kepler. Had a, I had a big hand in building it. Boop. So. <laughs> the, That's a the moment. Most, that is a moment. The most significant contribution to human knowledge Kepler. of this past decade is the fact that there exist thousands of other planets in orbit around other suns yeah. and some of them are like the earth yeah and it's just a matter of time yes before we address such important questions as is life there if so what is it like and if what, not why not and is this a place that we could go yeah please pete <laughs> Let us not go there until we figure out how to take care of this place. <laughs> well, what D.B. Chopes was saying about your invention, your co-invention, was that he was like, I, it actually surprised me. He was like, I don't think, I, I gave examples. I, I was just talking about pornography, things that, you know, the church is like, you, should, you shouldn't masturbate to pornography. So I was like, does God really care that I'm masturbating to pornography? And he was like, there's so many planets and there's just so many infinite possibilities for life other places. And he was like, I don't think God cares if you're jerking it to pornography. Yeah. And I was like, that's interesting. That's, a diff- that's not lifeguard God to me. That's something else. That's very interesting. This is the first moment in my life in which I have wondered if God watches masturbators. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, what someone like D.B. Chopes would say is God is the masturbator. In that moment, you masturbating are still a part of God. And so are the people in the pornography. And so is the laptop you're watching it on. That's sort of pantheistic, that, that everything being the part of this consciousness we call God. Does that do anything for you? No. <laughs> Does it, I mean, good or bad? Uh, it's interesting. Yeah. Okay. Just like the fact that worms can reproduce asexually is interesting. (laughs) But that's a fact. But what I'm saying, I am a knowledge junkie. Yeah. 
all of my life, I sop things up. Each day when, I, when <laughs> something new is learned, that's a joyful day. Yeah. I spend my life and have chosen this profession because it adds to human knowledge. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. And knowing what you just said about Deepak Chopra's yeah. point of view is interesting to me and becomes another little kernel of knowledge that I file under. A little wrinkle in your yeah. brain. There you go. That's a beautiful open heart. That's what I would call that. Open mind, I guess we could say, but I'm going to make it more poetic and say it's an open heart. I think that's lovely. Let's talk about your heart. Rob told me a little bit about your wife and how you met, and I I thought that story was worth sharing. Okay. Uh, (laughs) Once upon a time... Yeah, spare no uh, details. Yes. I was uh, single after having had two marriages and seven children, and I had decided that I wasn't very good as a husband, might be decent as a father, and was pretty good at at my work, and so therefore I would do those things for the rest of my life. (laughs) And so... Uh, I, I, one of my things is the, that I do is I'm responsible for the engineering integrity of all of our spacecraft that leave the planet Earth. Yes. And we were building a spacecraft that had an instrument on it that was coming from Italy, mm-hmm. and it was late. Now, the, culturally, Italians are late. <laughs> and so I had to go over to Italy to investigate to see whether or not this was a typically Italian late or whether or not there was some fundamental problem in the engineering design. Is this charming late or seriously bad late? (laughs) uh, It was more charming late at this point, but we needed to make sure that it, you know, get me to the launch on time. There you You go. So so I went to this meeting and I got there 30 minutes early and you have to, I'm now going to tell you what kind of a frame of mind I was in. And so I decided to walk into the church that was nearby where the meeting was taking place at the University of Rome. Mm. And there in front of me, and I did not read a guidebook, was a sculpture by Michelangelo. Yeah. And I said, I mean, if that's the kind of thing that I'm doing over here, I wander into a church and there's a sculpture of Michelangelo. So I went over and I listened to the the, the proceedings of the meeting and there was only one person in the meeting who understood anything at all about what was going on from my point of view. And it was, in my words, this little girl who kept correcting people and running around and telling everybody what what, uh, ought to happen. Mm -hmm. And that little girl, uh, I courted... Small girl or young girl? Both. How old is this woman at uh, well, this point? At, at that point, she was 28. 28 years she old. Had, she right. had her PhD in remote sensing engineering. Uh-huh. She didn't just fall off the turnip truck. Yep. I'm very fortunate, and Italian men cannot deal with women who are smarter than they are. So if she had not that's been taken. That's how she stayed off the market. That's why. That's how she's she stayed off. She's too smart. That's right. <laughs> and so uh, we... You, how do you ask her out? Uh, well, first of all, I didn't ask her out immediately because there, it was you know a professional situation. But she came to the United States, and I volunteered to, since I could speak Italian, and one of my hobbies is languages, so I could speak Italian. When did Italian. you learn Italian? Uh, I learned Italian in bits and pieces on tape throughout, yeah. throughout my life, and whenever I would go to Italy, I would immerse myself in the tapes before I would go. And yeah. so I had passable Italian then, but now, of course, because her family doesn't speak any English, whenever I go over there, it's you know total immersion in Italian. But at any rate, so she brought a team of people to the United States, and I made a forward, sent her a forward email which she immediately rejected and said, you know, this is a professional thing. And I was perfect. And I did not do anything out of the ordinary. And right at the end of the four days when we were together and we had spent a bunch of time together, she asked me if I would like to have a drink. Well, you were charming. You didn't do anything out of the ordinary, but you were a charming, charming I t- man. I tried to be charming, uh, but, uh, oh, yes, I was interested. Somebody said, you're acting like you weren't interested. I, I was very interested, even though she pointed out to me uh, many times, because we were not allowed to tell anybody about our relationship for a long time, and she regularly would point out to me how preposterous the whole situation was. Yes. Because at that stage, I was 60, and she was 28, and I had seven children from two previous marriages, and she was an unmarried Catholic from Italy. Yeah. And so, That's did, like did, a- you, did you ever see the movie Dr. Zhivago? No. Oh, goodness. I was going to give you a metaphor from Dr. Zhivago. A lot of people listen to this show. Go ahead, do it. All right. There is a scene in Dr. Zhivago where Omar Sharif, Yuri, he has this mistress named Julie Christie, Lim Lara, and he has his wife, Tonya, and he keeps coming back to see Lara. And he realizes it's a terrible thing to see, and he confronts her in the library in Yuri Atten, and he lectures to her for three minutes about how preposterous the whole situation is and how it's not going to continue. This is the last time they're ever going to see each other. And at the end, he looks over at her and he says, and do you believe me? 
And she shakes her head like that. Yeah. So that was what was going on with no. us. Yeah, shakes her head no. Yeah. And so every time she would tell me how preposterous, and we were never going to get together again. That's great. And then I, I haven't was, seen that movie, but I get it. You get it. I understand. So it didn't make any sense. So here we aren't shaving with Occam's razor. You're 60, you got seven kids from two marriages, and now you have this uh, hot, smart <laughs> fire. Well, but see, that's, that's 11 and a half years ago. Yeah. See, and now we have our own child. Yeah. So we have Francesco. You're 70 years old? 72. You're 72? Yes, I am. <laughs> Tremendous. <laughs> well done. Thank you. No red card for you. <laughs> no, red, no, no, no red card for me. So Rob told me that the, the learning languages had stuff to do with it. Like you wanted to impress her family, so you like brushed up well, on Well, her- first of all, for a long time, she didn't tell any, her parents anything about me at all. Yeah. And you can understand why. That was very wise. She's yeah. a smart lady. And then when she finally decided that, that uh, when I proposed and she tentatively accepted, <laughs> then she said, well, you have to meet my family and they have to know all about you. And yeah, yeah, yeah. So... Uh, it was de rigueur. I plunged myself into Italian, and we went over there, and I tried to have my charm on. I'm sure that at this particular moment, <laughs> if she were listening, she would say, he does have charm, but he also has the other side as well. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so, of course. So but, you tried to downplay the other side and upsell the, the charm. That's right. Learn and, some Italian. And, and, and actually, they did not accept me then. The moment that I became accepted in the family was also not when we got married. It was when they had never asked a question about children because they assumed that that was out of the question. Mm. But because I loved her and this would be her only chance to have a child, I agreed with her that if she could accept the risk of my age and other things, that yeah. we would have a child. And yeah. when she delivered Francesco and we named him after her father... I became a member of the family. Not an important one, but a member of the family. <laughs> because you were now bound in blood. There's right. this baby. That's right. So you now have a young child together. We have a magnificent five-year-old Rob who starts me. kindergarten this fall. Rob told me, he said, ask Gentry about his young child being in a religious school. That's your young son. Yes. Is this the one we're talking yes. about? Yes. <laughs> we are seriously considering... Having him go to a religious school. Yes. Because we believe human beings benefit from structure. Yep. And as long as the structure is loose enough that the interstices can be questioned, mm-hmm. that they're better off than going without any structure whatsoever. That is one of the most interesting things that I've... I'm 35, and I recently came across that idea by a guy that Rob turned me on to named Richard Rohr, who's a Franciscan uh, priest. He had this concept where he, he's kind of like Rob. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Rob is this beautiful other kind of Christian that I, have, I had never met before. So not the close... You know what I mean? Yes. You, you met the man. Yeah. So Richard was talking about in a sermon he was giving, or a talk rather, where he was like, I find it's more beneficial to have grown up as I did, which was... Lifeguard God, watching, judging, mm-hmm. watching, judging, fear, hell, fear, hell, sort of stuff. And then breaking that shell, being on the other side of it, rediscovering it, redefining, reappropriating, reorganizing every tenant of it, throwing some of them out, keeping others, shining others, is better than having started that pursuit when I was 35. And I agree. I grew up really believing God said it, I believe it, that does it. And now I'm completely not that way. <laughs> and I'm grateful, as absurd as it sounds, I'm grateful for that weird time in Squareville. I think that this process that we go through in life of coming to grips with what I call the infinite questions, what, mm. whatever you, th- you think they are, needs to start from some structure mm. that becomes a home base that you can return to rather than floundering around and asking you questions. Now, I started off as a religious, you know, I was sent to Sunday school and all that sort of stuff until I began asking questions that first the Sunday school teacher and then the pastor thought were unacceptable for Sunday school <laughs> I class. I see you doing that. Okay? <laughs> Sounds like but you. But I will tell you that having 
read the Bible. Wow. I, I, I was a Bible scholar, if you can believe it, at yeah. the age of 11 or 12. What? And, and, and I drove You my... read the Bible at 11? Oh, yeah. And I drove my pastor crazy, but I said, I don't get this Job shit. What kind of a God would make somebody suffer over and over and over again and then beat his chest because he still had faith? Yeah. That's not a God I want to have in my life. I don't want to do business. And so he said... The pastor was very nice. He said, Gentry, perhaps your pursuits would best be served without regular attendance at church school. <laughs> well, he knew. Yes, he did. He saw the face of the and Buddha. He, and he was correct. <laughs> <laughs> so you knew it, top to tails, forwards, backwards, better. I, 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 I've said this many times on the podcast. The people that taught my Sunday school were volunteers who hadn't read the Bible necessarily, who know you know, the hits. The, the, they read the little book. They told them what they were supposed to say. Exactly. That's right. right. Which is confusing. Oh, it's, it's a terribly confusing. and does not prepare them for questions like, if two-thirds of the people who are living on this earth never even hear of Jesus, why are they condemned to hell? Right. <laughs> I think that's the beginning of the unraveling for me. That's right. The, the problem with hell, which is why Rob was so necessary in my development, his writing, I mean, uh, obviously, is, uh, was hell. Was I was like, I don't understand what's going on. The Dalai Lama's in hell. Gandhi's in hell. You know what I mean? Like, what? Does that, does that resonate as true for you? There's a conscious living torment for these uh, peaceful, loving, enlightened beings? No, it, it's not possible. Okay. But, but, but. but, but. But I have to tell you that exploring hell led me to Dante uh, and the Inferno. Yeah. Should I and check it, that and, out? And, and, I have to tell you that if you're going to read any classic at all, yeah. you should read the Inferno, which is the first of his three books. And it's uh, the John Ciardi translation is the best one. Okay. And if you want to see what a creative mind can do, I mean, that that guy wrote that book not on the world's most powerful hallucinogen yeah. means he may have been the most exceptional writer of all time. No. Well, <laughs> Milton once said, Shakespeare and Dante divide the world between them. There is no third. <laughs> From Milton. <laughs> but why would I want to read? This is my series. This is what I'm bumping against. Why would I want to fill my mind with more horrific and beautiful and creative descriptions of what could possibly be happening from a child who was taught that 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 sort of stuff happens. Because you already have shown that you're interested in creativity. Yes. Okay. And the construct of Dante's Inferno is a magnificent creative piece of work. And then you take that and he has the great <laughs> statements like, you know, who's down in the lowest level, of course, it's, it's the other religions. And then he puts <laughs> the people who caused him trouble in various circles of hell. I mean, specific people that pissed him off. <laughs> you got the fourth circle. <laughs> you know, things like that. It's wonderful. And then you have to read the notes to see that that was a Florentine merchant. Or something. But I have to tell you, one, one uh. in, in my novel, one of the, uh, the Raman novels, one of the characters is a woman who, a precocious woman who gives tours yes. of, the, the, uh, of a, a church in Orvieto. And this church is very important because the, the guy who, who did the paintings on the church taught Michelangelo how to do new Nudes. Mm. Okay. So while this guy was down doing work for the Pope, his girlfriend ran off with the Duke. So when he came back to finish the painting, this is one of the greatest frescoes you'll ever see in the Duomo and Orvieto. You mm. don't want to miss it. <laughs> right in the center of this painting, five times life size, is the Duke and his ex-girlfriend humping in midair. <laughs> Forever. 500 years. I'll fix you. That's where you'll be for the rest of your life. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> That is served cold. That is a long time. That's amazing. Yes. That is truly amazing. Hearing you say that just now, talking about your Romanovs and your books and your creating telescopes <laughs> and wooing uh, beautiful young Italian women and learning languages and stuff, what? tell me what you've learned. Because as I'm talking to you, I'm like, oh, I want to go to a place like Orvieto with a person like you. Then I was like, what I really want is to be a person like you. And then what I want to ask you is, what is the formula? What are some of the shortcuts? <laughs> I, I could tell you mine, but I'd, I'd like to hear yours for creativity, for like feeding your mind, whatever comes to mind, whether it's how much you sleep or do you read, meditate? How do you confront a problem? Like, oh, I'm doing this too much. I should be doing that. Like people have a problem doing one of the things you've done. Writing a book is a daunting task. You know what I mean? How do, how do you 
how do you keep your creative blade, your life blade? How do you keep your your wiener golden? <laughs> okay, first, I am blessed because learning turns me on. Yeah. Okay. Now, I happen to believe that learning turns on every member of our species until it's beat out of them that that's a good thing. Mm. So the first thing Around you have to do age? is get in five, six, seven. Boom. Okay? Get out so of there. So the first thing you have to do is get in touch with your child of fascination. Okay? God. And that then powers you through the day, through the week, through the month, and allows you to be exposed to and interested in a w- incredible gamut of things, okay? Yes. And it is the exposure to that wide diversity of things ranging from blue, the movie Blue Velvet to William Faulkner's Go Down Moses to Renoir's paintings to the music of Beethoven, mm. all of that stuff, mm-hmm. you see, becomes the material from which you address issues in your life. Mm. And because of that, you are free and comfortable <laughs> using a syllogistic structure that does not belong to any particular discipline. Now, I've told this to people many times. <laughs> the left brain of the mind mm. is mathematical, okay, and it works in deductive logic. The right brain of the mind is an aesthetician. It's intuitive. That's where art resides. The greatest thinkers of all time have had an extremely active corpus callosum. That is the tissue that connects the two sides of the brain Mm. so that the ideas go back and forth. I once told a guidance and control analyst working on a problem that he did not know the, the, the answer to, to go read The Bear by William Faulkner. And he said, why? I said, go read it. And then when you're done reading it, attack the problem again. He solved it. (laughs) He said to me, that was the strangest book I have ever read in my life. I didn't understand what the bleep was going on halfway through. He put all this chronological stream of consciousness crap in there, and I had to almost meditate to figure out what he was saying. And at the end of it, I got what he was doing. And he came at it from a point of view that I would never have figured out. And I said, what if I were William Faulkner trying to solve my guidance and control problem? That's the secret. That's the secret. Here, that is brilliant. Speaking of touching, uh, touching, touching your child, uh, getting in touch with your child of fascination is what you said. Getting in touch with that. Um... This just happened last night. Often this podcast revolves around my past 12 hours. You know what I mean? Like, I find it's all there. The whole, my whole life just keeps repeating over and over in 12-hour chunks. Uh, That sounds like a nightmare. It's quite pleasant. Um, Last night, I'm sitting around, and I'm realizing just something as simple as this. I was like, oh, everybody keeps telling me this Masters of Sex show is very good. I'm going to watch the pilot for Masters of Sex. and And I did. And I liked it. But about, it's a, it's a little over an hour, about an hour in, I actually turned it off and was like, you know, I'm just going to watch something I've already seen. Why is it that my brain is just like, let's just be stupid? You know what I mean? Why is it that sometimes when I'm at my best, when my fear and my anxiety is at my lowest, my curiosity and my wonder are at their highest, all I want to do is gentry it up and absorb. And I look at the internet and I look at the wealth of information that's there for free, books and new films and movies. Why is it some days I feel that way and other days... It's frightening, and I want to retreat. I want to stay away from people. I want to stay away from new ideas. And how do I minimize that time and maximize the time that I'm like, let's go to the Warhol Museum. It's open on Sundays. Well, you're asking me a question that is, again, outside my my field of study that uh, there are... I'm whole, asking you on Saturn. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, the, the key... To what makes someone a knowledge junkie and other people, uh, I now know everything I need to know and don't tell me anything new, has to do, in my opinion, with how willing human beings are to take risk. Hmm. Uh, I believe that nobody who has made a serious impact on our history 
has ever done it without somewhere along the way taking what almost anybody would call a gigantic risk. Mm. Somewhere along the way, the blinking of the opportunity sensor, which is the single most important sensor you have, (laughs) it sits inside you, it takes everything in and says, is there an opportunity here for me? And that can be in any dimension you want. That blinking needs to overpower the reptilian part of you which wants to hunker down Mm. in your territory and make sure that you're comfortable. (laughs) And that battle goes on forever. And I will tell you that that I worry about myself from time to time. Sure. That I am not – I once upon a time was upset with – my progress in learning the Thai language. Mm. And so I got on a barge on a tributary of the Mekong River with six other people who spoke nothing but Thai for 48 hours. And I didn't even know where we were going. I just knew that I would have to speak Thai at the other end of that. (laughs) And people say, that was crazy. And I've asked myself, would I do that today? Yeah. Or have I become so... Comfortable, yeah. Reptilian, that's that's yeah. right. That I wouldn't do it, and <laughs> that's exactly what I'm talking about. Here I am, not half your age, but no, half your age. Thirty-six. I'm thirty-five. Okay, you're so half I'm my almost. Half Dante your... started the Inferno when he was thirty-five, just so that you know. Faulkner wrote The Bear at 72. No, no, not in 72. But, but, but Faulkner's style of writing is another interesting way that for, to live. You know, he would, yeah. he would write for 72 hours straight, and then he would drink for 72 hours straight. Now, that's not exactly a normal lifestyle. <laughs> I do find uh, in my own creativity there being a, a benefit. I don't mean to uh, champion drinking to excess. But like, I find that if I'm on the cut, I just finished a script the other day. I was just writing something on my own deadline, difficult to do. And, uh, I wrote it the day after I had thought about it for about a month. Nothing was happening. Went out drinking, not heavy. I'm talking about maybe like four glasses of wine. That's a, that's a good amount. Go to bed, eat some fucking fried shit. You know what I mean? Like a little bit of like a small death. A petite meal or whatever it is. And I went to bed and, and I woke up and the next morning, for some reason, I had killed some of my better judgment and I started writing. You know what I mean? So I believe, I, I think... No, I think you had killed some of your fear. <laughs> now, people ask me, why do I relax when I drink a little bit? Now, I, uh, intoxicants have been around since the beginning of human nature and we can go, go down. Sure. It removes... The inhibitions that are constructed from your fears, that's, that's what's happening, okay? I can, I've lived a long, long time. Yes. And I have had the good or bad fortune, depending on your point of view, of having lots and lots of relationships, mm-hmm. okay? And I can tell you that there is a plot of people's openness to new ideas as a function of alcohol that they have imbibed. (laughs) And it rises rapidly to roughly two drinks and then cascades downward to zero when they become pulverized. So there is an optimum point in there. That's so funny. There's a sketch. I forget who did it, but it's a comedy sketch called Nearly Two Drinks. And they're like that. You want a, a drink and three quarters of a drink. And then you're in that perfect place. And graph it. Yeah, you graph it. That's where you are. All of a sudden, you care about what that guy is saying. You yeah. didn't before, and in a little bit, if you yeah. continue drinking, yeah. you'll be too blah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who cares? Right. Then you just become like, give me nachos. You know what I mean? That's not, it, that's not compelling. Right. That's very interesting. Did I cut you off on your... Well, I, I think that is it. It's, it's uh, we want to... You, you said it perfectly. In the idea of, of how, to, how to get, stay in that curious place. And, to, and, to, and it does come down to fear and, and opportunity and trying to get rid of that. It's only been an hour? can't believe it. So, you know, I'm a big believer that this podcast is as long as it needs to be. Do you, understand? you know what I mean? Yes. We sometimes go a long time. That's why I was telling you, like, allow a long time. But we, we don't even have to. I, you've already blown my mind 15 times. Here's, here's a speed round. Um, 
when you come in, you, we're talking about tolerance, right? And uh, you, you brought up abortion earlier. And I, I'm not a political person. I don't even like conversations like this. But let's say uh, I don't believe in abortion, and you do. And my tolerance of you believing in it, in my view, is, uh, and again, I'm just playing the role, is killing innocent babies. You know what I mean? What do mm-hmm. we do then? Okay. Then what happens in a situation like that, and this is why society is complex and why our government should be conducted by people who pass a test of, I call it the Solomon test. Mm. Absent wisdom, no one should be in elected office, but there's no test for wisdom. Right. So in the best of all possible worlds, you could have your attitude about abortion. I could have my attitude about abortion. You could practice what you believe, and I could practice what I believe. Mm. Now, people point out that social contracts make it difficult for what this utopia that I'm defining to exist. Okay? However, I want to make this point right now. Mm. When we make laws that deal with people's lifestyle, how they conduct their lives, we do so with what I would call a societal preferred model theory of life, which underscores the religious attitudes that everyone has. We start talking about absolute rights and absolute wrongs. Now, do a jump shift with me and become an extraterrestrial and imagine that you're writing about this species, the putatively dominant species on the planet Mm -hmm. Earth, and what you observe about it. And the extraterrestrial said, by evolution, this creature has a tripartite brain, the inner core of which is reptilian, the overlay of which is primate, and the, the, the cerebellum is the only piece of it that is unique to this species and has allowed this species to survive and become putatively dominant. Unfortunately, the decision-making process that takes place both in individuals and in groups of this species too often dives down to the reptilian brain and forces the cerebellum to remain silent. <laughs> so that's what I would say. That's right. <laughs> now, if you want a nice exercise, yeah. I want you to try to imagine a history of the planet Earth written by an extraterrestrial who visits here every 40 million years. Mm. Giant lizards running around gobbling each other up. Oops! They're all gone. <laughs> A big bolide from outer space crashed into the planet. The dinosaurs had no weathermen. They didn't know they needed to move south. It was dark. That led to mammals. Oop. One of them has developed intelligence of a sort. And so forth. Because <laughs> he ate those mushrooms, man. Yeah. <laughs> that primate did. That is amazing. Sonnet Religious School, sci-fi novel, speaking Thai, Italian. Your wife, life on other planets, get in touch with your, your child of fascination, your inner child of fascination. Uh, I am satisfied. We always end by talking about God. We've talked about God a good amount. I will pose the question to you. What is, I have a feeling, I, I have a guess on what you're going to say based on our friend Occam. When we die, is it over? Yes. <laughs> But let me counter that by telling you what an incredible miracle we are in my terms. And I would like to go out that way. Please. Once upon a time, 13.81 billion years ago, the universe was born. And at that time, there was nothing but hydrogen and helium and lithium and subatomic particles. (laughs) And as time evolved... Stars formed, galaxies formed, stars died, and as they died, they made the higher order elements on the periodic chart. And then they exploded and blew those new elements across the whole entire universe, and new stars formed with them in them. And when they died, they made the higher order elements too. It took two generations of stars living and dying to make the atoms that make us up iron manganese and potassium the most astonishing miracle that has ever occurred is chemicals risen to consciousness which is what we are looking around and trying to figure out where we came from and where we are going i submit that no miracle that has ever occurred is greater than that 
You gotta close with that. Would you say keep it crispy? Yeah, that's uh, you gotta say keep it crispy. That's the catchphrase. Keep it crispy. <laughs> this was a real pleasure. Sincerely, thank you. thank you. Thank you for your time. That was amazing. <laughs> Now leaving Nerdist.com. 